but because they were God's people. Adolf Sapphire said, the object of his choice was God, the one who chose his fathers, who revealed to them his truth and grace, and commanded them to walk before him without fear, the God who was not ashamed to be called their God, and to whom he had been dedicated in his infancy. End of quote. Observe that fellowship with the people of God necessarily involved in some form or other affliction. Yes, God has ordained that we must through much tribulation enter into his kingdom. Acts 14.22 And declares, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 But why should this be so? Why has not God appointed a smoother path and a pleasanter lot for His high favorites while they pass through this world? We subjoin one or two of the many answers which may be returned to this question. God has decreed that the general state of His people on earth shall be one of hardship, opposition, persecution. First, to arouse them to spiritual diligence. He has told them in his word, This is not your rest. Micah 2.10 Nevertheless, there is a tendency in us to settle down here. Again and again, God bids us to watch and pray, to be sober and vigilant, alert and active. But only too often his exhortations fall on deaf ears. The wise virgins slumbered and slept as well as the foolish ones and need awakening because they will not heed such calls as are found in Romans 13:11, Ephesians 5:14, and so forth. He uses the enemy to arouse us. Second, to wean us from the world, because there is that in us which still loves the world. God in His mercy often stirs them up to hate us. Third, to conform us more fully unto the image of Christ. The head endured the contradiction of sinners against himself, and his body is called to have fellowship in his sufferings. The pleasures of sin, in verse 25, has immediate reference to the riches and dignities of Pharaoh's court, which Moses could no longer enjoy without being unfaithful to God and his people. To have gone on living in the palace, would be despising Jehovah and his covenant with Abraham's seed. It would have been preferring his own advancement and ease rather than the deliverance of his people. He would have been conducting himself as a worldling rather than as a stranger and pilgrim in the scene. And worse, he would have been conniving at Pharaoh's cruel treatment of the Hebrews. Moreover, to have resisted the impulse of the Spirit on his heart would have been sin. This shows us that things which are not sinful in themselves become so when used or enjoyed at the wrong time. Everything is beautiful in its season. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 The principle we have just enunciated is of great practical importance Material things become snares if employed 
intemperately. God has granted us permission to use the things of this world, but has forbidden the abuse of them. 1 Corinthians 7.31 Temporal blessings become a curse if they are allowed to hinder us from the discharge of duty. All associations must be severed which deter us from having fellowship with the saints. Personal ease and comfort are to be set aside when our brethren are suffering affliction and need a helping hand. Alas, only God knows how many professing Christians have continued to enjoy the luxuries of life while thousands were without some of the bare necessities of life. Everything which is severed from true godliness is included in this expression, the pleasures of sin. Temporal mercies are to be enjoyed with thankfulness to God, but only so far and so long as they help promote a true following of the example which Christ has left us. Alas, how many are seeking their happiness in the things of the flesh rather than in the things of the Spirit. Scripture says, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Proverbs 15.16 But how few believe it. Mark it well, dear reader. The pleasures of sin are only for a season and a solemnly brief season at that. They must end either in speedy repentance or speedy ruin. How blessed is the contrast presented in Psalm 16.11 At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Is my heart set upon them? If so, I am making it my chief concern every day to walk along the only path which leads to them. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Hebrews 11.26 Here the Holy Spirit mentions a third instance of Moses' contempt of the world. First, of its honors, verse 24, then of its pleasures, verse 25, now of its wealth. Note the emphatic gradation in the decision of Moses as intimated in the three verbs. First, he refused to be any longer acknowledged as the adopted son of Egypt's princes. Second, he chose or deliberately elected to become identified with and throw in his lot among the despised and suffering people of God. Third, he esteemed the reproach this involved as high above that which he relinquished and renounced. The same Greek word is rendered judged in verse 11, showing that it was no rash conclusion which he jumped too hastily but that it was the mature consideration of his mind and heart. Another has compared the three verbs here with Mark 4.28. First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. This 26th verse is an amplification of what is found in the 24th and 25th, and announces both the intelligence of Moses' choice and the fervor of spiritual affection which prompted it. The decision that he made was not a reluctant and forced one, but ready and joyous. 
It was not merely he perceived that identifying himself with the Hebrews was a bounden duty, and therefore he must make the best of a bad job and put up with the hardships such a course entailed, but that he gladly preferred the same, Christ meaning infinitely more to him than everything which was to be found in Egypt. Reader, is the denying of self and taking up of the cross something which you grudgingly perform, or does the love of Christ constrain, 2 Corinthians 5.14, you thereto? Can you in your measure say with the Apostle, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10 What is meant here by the reproach of Christ? The Savior was not born till many centuries later. True, but those whom the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world were from Abel onwards well acquainted with him. See John 8, verse 56. Christ had a beginning before he was born of the Virgin. We read of Israel tempting Christ in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10, 9. From the beginning, Christ was head of the church and in his own person, that his own people, and was present in their midst under the name of the Angel of the Covenant. Let the interested reader carefully ponder the terms of Exodus 23, 20-22, and it should be plain that no created angel is there in view. Thus, whatever that people suffered, it was the reproach of Christ who had taken them under his protection. There was a communion between Christ and his people as real and as intimate as that union and communion which exists between him and his people now. Weigh well Isaiah 63, 9, Zechariah 2, verse 8, and compare with Acts 9, 4, and Matthew 25, 34, and clear proof of this will be obtained. The reproach of Christ, then, signifies first, Christ personally as identified with his people. Second, it has reference to Christ mystically, his redeemed as one with him in humiliation and persecution. John Owen wrote, Christ and the church were considered from the beginning as one mystical body, so as that what the one underwent, the other is esteemed to undergo the same. Unquote. In marriage, the wife takes the name and status of her husband, because they have become one flesh. In like manner, the church is called Christ in 1 Corinthians 12.12 12 and Galatians 3.16 because of its union and communion with him, because of the likeness and sympathy between them. Nor was this blessed mystery kept concealed, as modern dispensationalists wrongly declare, from the Old Testament saints, as a careful comparison of Jeremiah 23.6 with 33.16 makes very evident. Moses had heard from God that the Hebrews were his people and the remnant among them, according to the election of grace, were ordained to be Jordanes with Christ, and believing what he heard, 
he voluntarily and gladly decided to throw in his lot with them. That the mystical body of Christ, the Church, is in view here in Hebrews 11.26, for the head and his members can never be separated, though they may be viewed distinctly, is abundantly clear by a careful comparison of the preceding clauses. Verses 25 and 26 are obviously parallel and explain one another. In the former, we are told that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Thus, there is a threefold parallelism. The reproach of verse 26 agrees with and is interpreted by the suffering affliction of verse 25. The Christ of verse 26 corresponds with and is defined by the people of God in verse 25, and the treasures of Egypt balances with and explains the pleasures of sin for a season. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward, verse 26. This was what strengthened and supported the faith of Moses. He had never forsaken the honors and comforts of the palace unless his heart had been fixed upon the eternal recompense. Faith realizes that peace of conscience is better than a big bank balance, that communion with God is infinitely to be preferred above the favors of an earthly court. Moses knew that he would be no loser by such a choice, Faith sees that nothing is lost which is quitted for Christ's sake. Though the name of Moses was removed from Egypt's records, it has been accorded a prominent place upon the imperishable pages of Holy Writ. See here the vast difference between worldlings and saints. The former estimate things by sight, the latter by faith. The former through the colored glass of corrupt reason and carnal sense, the latter by the light of God's word. Thus they wonder at each other. The world thinks the real Christian is crazy. The Christian knows the poor worldling is spiritually insane. The heart of Moses was set upon something more blessed than the perishing things he was relinquishing. The he had respect is a compound in the Greek and properly signifies to look from one thing to another. He looked from the things of time to those of eternity, for faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. This is one of the great properties of faith, to frequently and trustfully under the promise of eternal life, which we are to dwell in forever after this scene of sin is left behind. Faith perceives that the way to save is to lose. Matthew 16, verse 25, that present self-denial will yet be honored by enrichment, knowing that if now we suffer with Christ, we shall be also glorified together. Romans 8.17 How all this condemns the practice of many who spend their lives in the greedy pursuit of the world with no regard to God or their eternal interests, but think that 
if they call on him for mercy with their last gasp, all will be well. Such people terribly deceive themselves by failing to see that eternal life is a reward. See Luke 1, 74 and 75. We must labor in the works of godliness in this life. That which Moses had respect unto is here called the recompense of the reward. This is the all-sufficient presence of God with his people now. Genesis 15.1 And the great and final reward of eternal glory, which is given by God and received by His people as a compensation for all their sufferings. This is one of the New Testament passages which proves the Old Testament saints had a much clearer understanding of the future state of the redeemed than is now commonly supposed. For the reward of good works See Hebrews 6, verse 10, of patience, 6, verse 12, of suffering, 10, verse 34. The calling of heaven of reward in no wise imports any desert on man's part, but abundant kindness in God, who will not suffer anything to be done or endured for Christ's sake without recompense. It is called a reward to encourage obedience, Psalm 19.11, and allure our hearts, Matthew 5.12. That a gift may be a reward is clear from Colossians 3.24. It is also called a reward because it is God's owning of the Spirit's work in and through His people. Since eternal glory is a reward, let us be patient under present suffering. Romans 8.18 It is legitimate to view the reward of heaven while serving here. Not that this is to be the chief or only motive, for that would be a religion of selfishness, but as faith's anticipation. Compare Philippians 3, verses 8-14. to The reward is, as John Owen said, gratuitous, that God hath annexed to faith and obedience, not merited or deserved by them, but infallibly annexed unto them in a way of sovereign bounty. End of quote. Chapter 18 The Faith of Moses, Part 3 Hebrews 11, 27 in chapters 16 and 17, upon chapter 11, 24 to 26, we have before us the striking example of the power of faith to rise above the honors, riches, and pleasures of the world. Now we are to behold it triumphing over its terrors. Faith not only elevates the heart above the delights of sense, but it also delivers it from the fear of man. Faith and fear are opposites, and yet, strange to say, they are often found dwelling within the same breast. But where one is dominant, the other is dormant. The constant attitude of the Christian should be, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Isaiah 12.2 but alas, 
What ought to be and what is are two vastly different things. Nevertheless, when the grace of faith is an exercise, its language is, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Psalm 56.3 So it was with Moses. He is here commended for his courage. The leading feature of that particular working of Moses' faith, which we are now to consider, was its durability. That which engaged our attention on the last two occasions occurred when our hero had come to years. Forty years had elapsed since then, during which he passed through varied experiences and sore trials. But now that he is eighty years of age, faith is still active within him. That spiritual grace moved him to withstand the attractions of Egypt's court, had led him to relinquish a position of high honor and wealth, had caused him to throw in his lot with the despised people of God. And now we behold faith enabling him to endure the wrath of the king. A God-given faith not only resists temptations, but it also endures trials and refuses to be daunted by the gravest dangers. Faith not only flourishes under the dews of the Spirit, but it survives the fires of satanic assault. True faith neither courts the smiles of men, nor shuns their frowns. Herein it differs radically from that natural faith, which is all that is possessed by thousands who think they are children of God. Recently, we received a letter in which a friend wrote, I know some professing Christians who boasted that the prospect of being out of work did not trouble them at all, for they knew every need would be supplied. Now that they have no work, they are not nearly as confident, but are wondering how in the world they are going to get along. So too we read of the stony ground here. The same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Matthew 13, verses 20 to 21. Far otherwise was it with Moses. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Hebrews 11.27 Moses left Egypt on two different occasions, and there is some diversity of opinion among the commentators as to which of them is here in view. Personally, we think there is little or no room for doubt that the Holy Spirit did not have reference unto the first, for we are told, and Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. Exodus 2 verses 14 and 15 There he fled as the criminal. Here he went forth as the commander of God's people. Then he left Egypt in terror, but now by faith. 
There are some, however, who find difficulty in the fact that Moses' leaving of Egypt is here mentioned before his keeping of the Passover and sprinkling of the blood in verse 28. But this difficulty is self-created by confining our present text unto a single event instead of understanding it to refer to the whole conduct of Moses. His forsaking of Egypt is a general expression which includes all his renouncing a continuance therein and his steady determination to depart therefrom. So too, his not fearing the wrath of the king must not be restricted unto the state of his heart immediately following the exodus, but also takes in his resolution and courage during the whole of his dealings with Pharaoh. And herein we may perceive again the stability of his faith, which withstood the most fiery ordeals and which remained steadfast to the end. Thus did he supply a blessed illustration of who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse Peter 1, verse 5 The experiences through which Moses passed and the testings to which his faith was subjected were no ordinary ones. First, he was bidden to enter the presence of Pharaoh and say, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Exodus 5, verse 1 Let it be duly considered that for forty years Moses had lived the life of a shepherd in Midian, and now, with no army behind him, with none in Egypt's court ready to second his request, he has to make this demand of the haughty monarch who reigned over the greatest empire then on earth. Such a task called for no ordinary faith, nor did he meet with a favorable reception. Instead, we are told, And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Exodus 5 verse 2 Not only did the idolatrous king refuse point blank to grant Moses' request, but he said, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you unto your burdens? Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Exodus 5 verses 4 and 7 Well might the heart of this stoutest quake under such circumstances as these. To add to his troubles, the heads of the Israelites came unto Moses and said, The Lord look upon you and judge, because ye have made our Savior to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to slay us. Exodus 5.21 Ah, faith must be tested nor must it expect to receive any encouragement or assistance from men, no, not even from our own brethren. It must stand alone in the power of God. Later, Moses was required to interview Pharaoh again. After Jehovah had informed them, he had hardened his heart and said, 
The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe the drink of the water of the river. Exodus 7, verses 16 to 18. It is easy for us now, knowing all about the happy sequel, to entirely underestimate the severity of this trial. Seek to visualize the whole scene. Here was an insignificant Hebrew, belonging to a company of slaves with no powerful union to press their claims. There was the powerful monarch of Egypt who, humanly speaking, had only to give the word to his officers, and Moses had been seized, beaten, tortured, murdered. Yet notwithstanding, he feared not the wrath of the king. We cannot now follow Moses through all the stages of his great contest with Pharaoh but would press on to the closing scene. After the tenth plague, Pharaoh called for Moses and proposed a compromise, which upon Moses refusing, he said, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more, for in that day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. Exodus 20, verse 28 But Moses feared not the wrath of the king, and boldly announced the final plague. Not only so, he declared that his servants should yet pay him homage. Exodus 114 4-8 John Owen declared he had before him a bloody tyrant armed with all the power of Egypt, threatening him with present death if he persisted in the work and duty which God had committed to him. But he was so far from being terrified or declining his duty in the least, that he professeth his resolution to proceed and denounceth destruction to the tyrant himself. Unquote. After the tenth plague had been executed, Moses led the children of Israel out of the land in which they had long groaned in bondage. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, Hebrews 11:27. Even now he was not terrified by thoughts of what the enraged monarch might do, nor at the powerful forces which he most probably would send in pursuit. But staying his mind upon God, he was assured of the divine protection. He allowed not gloomy forebodings to discourage him. Yet once more we would say, it is easy for us, in the light of our knowledge of the sequel, to underestimate this marvel. Visualize the scene again. On the one hand was a powerful nation who had long held the Hebrews in serfdom and would therefore be extremely loath to let them altogether escape. On the other hand, here was a vast concourse of people including many thousands of women and children, unorganized, unarmed, unaccustomed to travel, 
with a howling wilderness before them. Ah, my reader, does not such a situation as we have hastily sketched here seem utterly hopeless? There did not seem one chance in a thousand of succeeding, yet the spirit of Moses was undaunted, and he is here commended to us for his courage and resolution. But more, Pharaoh, accompanied by six hundred chariots and a great armed force, pursued them. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were so afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Exodus 14, 10-11 Here was the crucial moment, the supreme test. Did Moses' heart fail him? Was he not terrified by the wrath of the king? No, indeed. So far from it, he calmly and confidently said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians, whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. Oh, how the undaunted courage of Moses shames our petty fears! What cause have we to blush and hang our heads in shame? Many are there who fear very much less than the wrath of a king, such things as darkness and solitude, or even the rustling of a leaf will frighten them. No doubt, such fear is constitutional with some, but with the great majority it is a guilty conscience which makes them alarmed at a shadow. The best way for weak ones to overcome their timidity is to cultivate the sense of God's presence, and for the guilty to confess and forsake their sins. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1 Fear is the result of distrust, of taking the eye off God, of being unduly occupied with difficulties and troubles. And what was it that enabled Moses to conduct himself with such firmness and boldness? What was it that delivered his heart from fearing the wrath of the king? Faith a spiritual, supernatural, God-given, God-energized faith. Reader, do you know anything experimentally of such a faith? Again, we would be reminded that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 Moses had heard, he had heard something from God, and his faith laid hold of and rested upon the same. What was it that he had heard? This, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Exodus 3, verse 12. 
So too, if we are Christians, God has said to us, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Therefore, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Perhaps someone may ask, But was there no wavering in Moses' faith? Yes, dear reader, for he was a man of like passions with us. They who have a faith which never varies, which remains the same whether it be cloudy and stormy or fair and sunny, have nothing but a natural and latter faith. A spiritual and supernatural faith is one which we did not originate and is one which we cannot call into exercise whenever we please. God imparted it, and He alone can renew and call it into action. When the leaders of Israel murmured against Moses and charged Him with endangering their lives, Exodus 5.21, we are told that Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people, neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Exodus 5:22 and 23 Blessed is it to behold the patience of God with his failing servant, and to see how he comforted and strengthened him. Exodus 6, verses 1 to 8 By faith he forsook Egypt, Faith assures the heart of a better portion in return for anything God calls us to relinquish. No matter how attractive to the senses, no matter how popular with our fellows, no matter how necessary it may seem for the interests of our families, faith is convinced that God will not suffer us to be the losers. Genesis 12.1 So Abraham left Chaldea. So Ruth forsook Moab, Ruth 1.16. Here is one way in which a true faith may be discerned and known. If we were born and brought up in an idolatrous place where honors, pleasures, and treasures might be enjoyed, and we, for conscience sake, have forsaken that place, then surely we have a spiritual faith. Few are now required to do as Abraham did, but all are commanded to obey. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 17. Ah, there are many who forsake Egypt, the world's vices and pleasures, who do not separate from its religion. And that was the central thing and the final test which Moses' faith had to overcome. Again and again Pharaoh sought a compromise. But with inflexible firmness, Moses stood his ground. The demand of God was, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Exodus 5.1 There must be a complete separation from the religion of the world. But that is something which the world cannot brook, for the withdrawal of God's people condemns them. Hence we find Pharaoh saying, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. Exodus 8.25 
But Moses was not to be moved. We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He shall command us. Exodus 8.27 Next we are told, Pharaoh said, I will let you go that ye may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only ye shall not go very far away. Chapter 8, verse 28. This was tantamount to saying, If you are determined to adopt this holier-than-thou attitude, there is no reason why there should be a complete break between us. After the Lord had further plagued Egypt, the king again sent for Moses and Aaron and asked, Who are they that shall go? Moses answered, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds. Exodus 10.9 But that was too much for Pharaoh, who replied, Not so. Go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord. 10.11 See here, in Pharaoh, my reader, our great adversary, striving to get us to temporize? If you are determined to forsake the church, at least leave your children in the Sunday school. How subtle the devil is! What a living book is the word! How thoroughly suited to our present lot and needs! This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. 
There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.